0: Well, good morning. Peace be with you guys. Uh, my name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors, as Eric mentioned. Uh, it's good to see you guys again. It's good to be up here opening the Word uh, with you guys. It's, um, and, and a special welcome to our visitors, too. If, if you're checking out the Oaks for the first time, I know I've got some family here. Like, Welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a safe place. We're, we're thankful that you've come to check us out. And... Um, after the service, like if you don't know anyone here, come find me, introduce yourself to me, or uh, or one of the other pastors, like Pastor Eric. Uh, and then we ha- also have a connect table out, outside that um, you can get plugged in, learn more about the church. Uh, Mr. Kevin would be back there after church and can fill you in and get you plugged in. But anyway, welcome to all of us. It's good to be here with you guys. It's good to open the word with you. Uh, this has been Ecclesiastes, like it's been a little bit nuts, and it's been, uh, it's been interesting and challenging for me to, to be in it and, and then um, preach out of it and teach out of it. Um, but I'm going to do it, and I humbly submit to this. And I think the, word of the Lord really has some like sweet words for us today as we're going to look at adversity. And that's where we're going to be today. So Ecclesiastes um, chapter 6, verse 10. Is we're going to pick up, and we're going to read from there to chapter seven, verse fourteen. Today, and the preacher is going to walk us through and make us ponder adversity. And when I say adversity, what we're talking about here is is bad times, a painful time, experiencing evil or misery. And I think there's no doubt that this adversity that the preacher touches on today is experienced or has been experienced in more ways than one by all of us, right? As Lou Allen said in the liturgy. Some of us have been through great loss already in our lives. We've lost parents, we've lost spouses, we've lost siblings, we've lost children, we've lost close friends. If you've escaped those painful seasons, you have perhaps been dealt a severe illness, or you have been in the throes of an abusive relationship, you're in a season of great need. You're in a season of great want because the good thing you want and you pray for, such as marriage or a child, healing or justice, just never seems to be heard by God. A friend told me this week that they feel like life is a war zone period. If you're thinking you still have yet to experience some form of adversity, let me remind all of us that we are still in or perhaps slowly coming out of the worst pandemic in the last 100 years. Or have you or me, myself, with our ever anxious and future focused minds already forgotten about it? (laughs) We've tucked the whole pandemic away because it hurt too much. We've erased it from our memory. There is no doubt in my mind that the preacher's words here about adversity will connect with us this morning if we let them. And so let's, I, I want to give a brief outline before we get into the text. I think it will help us read it, and you'll know where we're going with it. So this lesson on adversity is bookended by the preacher highlighting at the beginning in chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, And then at the very end in verse 714, chapter 7, verse 14, he's bookending and he and he starts off explaining that as much as we would like to disagree, we are not that powerful, we are not powerful, and we are not in control of whether we are in a season of good times, which we'll call prosperity. The preacher uses the word prosperity, or a season of bad times, adversity. After the beginning, the preacher is going to jump into a series of short little I call them Proverbs, but this is verses 1 through 13. So Proverbs, or we could call them wisdom nuggets or sayings, but these Proverbs give us a window into what wisdom looks like in times of adversity. And we'll consider in detail later about these Proverbs. But as you're reading, I invite you, if you're a note-taker, like circle, highlight, write something down that sticks out as we're as we're reading these Proverbs. And then we finish our reading and. In chapter 7, verse 14, and this verse is similar to to our beginning verses, and, and it reminds us of the crucial truth that we, in fact, have zero control of what happens. We have zero control of what happens in the next minutes, hours, days, and weeks, and years of our lives here on earth. All we can do is accept prosperity as well as adversity from the hand of God as it comes. So let's read together Ecclesiastes. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 10. And if you're able this morning, will you please stand with me as we read the text out of respect for God's Word? Chapter 6, starting verse 10. It'll be on the screens also behind me if you'd like to follow along there. The preacher says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools this also is vanity surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools say not why were the former why were the former days better than these for it is not from wisdom that you ask this wisdom is good with an inheritance An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God and who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity be joyful and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything. That will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. So we'll start out with our beginning bookend, that we're not in control. And let's, let's do a little experiment. So kids, to all the kiddos in the room, uh, do you ever argue with your parents about something? Show of hands, it's a safe place. Like if you argue, yes. Yeah, some grown-ups are raising their hand. <laughs> I appreciate that honesty. Kids, let me let you in on a little secret. And I should get a hearty amen from the parents here after this. But whatever your parents do for you, whatever they get you to eat or make you eat, whatever toys they get you as gifts, wherever they send you to school, whoever they let you play with and win, whatever they ask you to eat, they do it because it's the best possible thing for you. Amen, parents? Or have we like forgot, we're so tired, we like forget that we're even good doing good things, right? <sighs> no, it's good. Parents, you do good things. Don't forget that. But kids, I know even when you hear me say that it is hard to believe, right? You question whether mom and dad are really providing you with everything you need. And so you argue. Let me let you in on one more little secret, kiddos. Your mom and dad hold all the power. And the arguing is vain. It is not going to change their mind. I hear more amens. But to all the grown-ups this morning, to me this morning, God holds all the power over us. There is no point in arguing with him. The preacher says, man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he, and that he is God. The more words, the more vanity. Now let's make a quick distinction here, though. It's important. We want our children to talk to us. I want my kids to talk to me. And God wants us to talk to him. Prayer is a wonderful gift. That we are able to talk to our creator, The creator of the universe should floor us. God is relational by nature, but our relationship with God does not need to include our vain comments about how he is not giving us what we need. The preacher says it. Our complaining to God is vain. It gives us no advantage in life. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this vain complaining to God. He puts it this way. Woe to you who strive with your maker, earthen vessel, With the potter, does the clay say to the one who fashions it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. I challenge you to consider, if you find yourself in prayer arguing with God or complaining to him about what he has given you or held back from you, that you would consider this morning, just think about, consider, that there may be good in the day of adversity you find yourself in. Let's look at what the preacher says about navigating adversity with wisdom. So this morning we're going to approach the, preacher, the preacher's Proverbs. We're going to be in the middle section here of our text, verses 1 through 13 in chapter 7. We're going to approach the preacher's Proverbs in two ways. The first way of looking at these Proverbs, or the wisdom nuggets, is going to be by cross-referencing them with New Testament passages and seeing whether these passages line up with the New Testament teachings. And our second way of approaching the preacher's Proverbs, again, verses one through 13, we're gonna dive deeper. We will look to see whether the preacher's words give meaning to our seasons of adversity and why we can endure them. So let's start out by cross-referencing the preacher's wisdom with the rest of the Bible. The preacher starts out wanting us to consider death. The preacher's first four lines in chapter 7 all have to do with confronting death. In these first four verses, the preacher has focused on the topic most of us seek to avoid. According to Genesis 3, death is God's punishment for human disobedience. God says of us, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is tragic, death is the climax. Of human suffering. But the preacher shows that the wise can maybe detect some good even in death. So in verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, he said, the preacher says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Think for a moment. Through the eyes of the preacher, who is not thinking about resurrection, afterlife, the dead are better off than the living because they no longer have to witness the injustice, the pain, the tears that the living see. The day of birth is the beginning of a lifetime of witnessing the tears of the oppressed and being oppressed oneself. But the day of death marks the end of witnessing the suffering of others and one's own suffering. In verse 2, the preacher says, better to go to the house of the mourning than the house of the feasting. You don't think about yourself dying very much. I don't think about myself dying very much. You probably try to avoid the topic. I avoid the topic, and thus we live in denial about our realities. But when you go to a funeral, you can no longer deny the reality of death. The preacher says, and the living will lay it to heart. He's saying the wise keep this reality in mind and live accordingly. It reminds me of Psalm 90, verse 12, which says, the psalmist says, teach us to count our days. In verse 3, again, he's still in his like little death nuggets. Sorrow is better than laughter, for, fi- for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Let me point out that laughter here is not the enjoyment that the preacher recommends throughout his sermon. Here, the meaning of this laughter is more like to behave in a frivolous manner. But how does sadness on our faces make our hearts glad? Again, we have to think about when our faces are most sad. And that's when we have lost the people we have loved the most. And in those moments of sadness, we are confronted again with death. Which gives those who mourn and those who weep perspective to seize each day and to live it to the full. Finally, in verse 4, the preacher concludes that the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning. All right, so we got, we've got some of the preacher's nuggets. We're holding them we're holding them in view now through his eyes, through his lens. So let's zoom out and take a wider look at what the Bible says about death. Do the apostles want us to consider death? Do they want us to contemplate death? Well, look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and this will be up on the screen behind me. And God raised, raised from death, the Lord, and will also raise us up. What will he raise us up from? It's from death, by his power. That's the Apostle Paul. Does Jesus want us to contemplate death? Jesus says, but after I am raised up, raised up from what, Jesus, from death, I will go before you to Galilee. The Apostle Luke writes in Acts, God raised him, Jesus, up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, from our zoomed out view, I think it's pretty easy to see, and this is just a s- small sampling of, of New Testament scriptures, but it's pretty easy to see that the Bible wants us to think and confront the topic of death, right? The preacher does, the New Testament does, the rest of the Bible does. And I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself here, but if we, brothers and sisters, Don't contemplate death. We miss the power of Jesus' words that I just read. (laughs) Not only does, does God raise Christ up, so Jesus is God, so sure, God raised God up. Big whoop to many of us, right? But he uses his power to raise us up. Friends, if we don't contemplate death and enter into the house of the morning ever, we don't think and meditate on these wonderful truths. Again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but we're going to continue now exploring more connections with the preacher's Proverbs in the New Testament. We continue. And these will be up on the screen so you can see them. They're very similar. It's almost like they're linear. The preacher says, Even the wise are tempted by riches. The preacher says, A bribe corrupts the heart. Jesus said of riches, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The preacher says the wise are patient. The preacher says that the patient are better off than the proud. The Apostle Paul instructs us to be patient in tribulation. The preacher says fools nourish anger. Do not be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Fools coddle their vexation in their bosom. They nurture it. They let it grow, while all along, of course, it's gnawing at them. Fools nourish their anger until it explodes. The Apostle James says... For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The preacher says that the wise do not complain in the face of trials. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So we see, whoever the author of Ecclesiastes was, we don't know. If it was King Solomon, his mouthpiece, somebody else completely. They did not know Christ or have him in mind when they wrote or penned the sermon the Ecclesiastes book. But that is not to say that when the sermon was penned some 1,000 years before Christ lived that Jesus and his wisdom is not written into it. It is easy to see that the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, agrees with the preacher's wisdom or his Proverbs. To simplify and over-clarify here, all we have done so far is to see that our preacher's words of wisdom Match that of the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. But if we don't move on from here and into our second way of looking at our text, we will miss a lot. So we'll move on to our second approach of looking at our text. We will contrast now the meaning of the preacher's words and his wisdom with the meaning of the words of Jesus and the apostles. This second approach to these proverbs again, we're one, verses one through 13 the second approach to these Proverbs agrees with what we have been discovering throughout this sermon series. And that is what the preacher makes us consider, right? This preacher in Ecclesiastes has been, think about your life. Think about how meaningless it is. And what the preacher makes us consider is how terrible, how hopeless, how grim our lives actually are without God somehow stepping in and bringing meaning to all of life. Life is just vanity. It's vain. It's a thin air. It's a mist that will disappear. You see, the preacher has offered helpful advice, and he answers questions somewhat partially about what and how we can travel through adversity well. But his why we deal with adversity actually leaves us hopeless. And I'll explain. Look at the preacher's wisdom about death. He wants us mindful of it. He wants us to consider that dying is perhaps better than living, right? He said that from the get-go. Like, well, you don't have to see all the misery. You don't have to go through all the pain. But if you run this logic all the way out, what do you start to entertain or consider? If you're thinking dying is perhaps better than living, what does that lead to? Suicide. Think about it. Through the preacher's eyes, suicide is perhaps a more wise choice than prolonging your life and suffering. But now let's contrast that with what the Apostle Paul says about the meaning of death. Paul says, For as one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, because we are sinners we die, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, as sin and death increased, grace increased all the more, Apostle Paul says. Leading to our righteousness, which makes us perfect, spotless, in cahoots with God, which leads to eternal life, friends. How's that for some meaning in death? (laughs) Let's look at the preacher's advice on patience. He communicates that the patient are in it for the long haul. They are willing to withhold judgment until they see the end of a thing. When adversity strikes, they will bear it patiently and wait for the outcome. But again, run this out. What is the end to everything in the preacher's mind? It's us dying. It's going to be gone. So I'm asking, I find myself asking, so preacher, you want me to spend my days patiently waiting for the day I die? Like, why? Why? What good is that? Well, is there another reason we might be patient in life? This is what the Apostle Paul says again. This is in Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So why are we patient? I read that and reflect because we've we've got no reason to go anywhere else. We have the love of God, and it will never be taken away. Where else would we go, friends? (laughs) Finally, let's look at the preacher's advice about adversity in the present hard times. Fools are dissatisfied with the present hard times, the preacher says. Fools lack self-control. But why should we have self-control? Why, preacher? Why should we be satisfied with the present hard times? He never really answers the question. Apostle Paul says we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Apostle Peter says blessed be the so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says simply in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, it's three quick verses but we're answering the question as to why we should have self-control and why should we be satisfied with the present hard times. What's the meaning? Here's the meaning. In summary, what we've just read is we are being renewed. You are being renewed. You are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You have a living hope of resurrection, friends living, a real hope of resurrection. You will be resurrected. (laughs) Our genuine faith, your genuine faith, will be celebrated at Christ's return. God will be celebrating you when he comes back. And finally, Jesus said, friends, you will be comforted. Know that you will be comforted. Charles Spurgeon simplifies it this way, kind of sums up this thought. But he says, quote, Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the, which, than the one in which you are in, divine love would have put you there. Now, it has been said in this sermon series in Ecclesiastes, and I'll say it again, the, the preacher paints a bleak picture of what life without Christ would be like. Ecclesiastes is confronting us with the reality. And really, we have to admit, sound logic. This is sound logic in Ecclesiastes of a life without meaning. We see that we will never be able to answer the why questions in life with any shred of hope without something outside of ourselves speaking in and giving meaning. Humans need a Savior, and it's not ourselves. Pastor Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote the Message Bible, a lot of great books. But he has this remark on people coming to know Jesus. I think it's spot on, and then I'm going to wordsmith it with Ecclesiastes. It's funny, but he says, one way to define spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself, you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. I was, I was thinking... Uh, I don't know, this made me laugh, but I would perhaps add this translation. One way to, divine, to divine, define spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with reading Ecclesiastes that you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. Our meaning, either through adversity or prosperity in life, is unlocked through the saving and rescuing work of God. We have answers in Christ as to why we face adversity. Okay, so now we're done with our Proverbs. We turn to our our preacher's final section, a bookend to the beginning, a reminder that we are not in control of what the day will hold and that we will surely have days of prosperity and we will surely have days of adversity. The preacher says in 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider... God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The preacher ends our section similar to how he started it, by stating that man might not, may not find out anything that will be after him. Man is subject to God and not in control of what lies ahead, period. The preacher has told us that in the day of prosperity we should be joyful, we should celebrate. And in the day of adversity, he tells us to consider, stop, at least think about the fact that God has made both days. And both are given to us to navigate for different reasons. And we have explored and seen this morning with the entirety of Scripture that both seasons, seasons of prosperity and seasons of adversity, are both good for us I think it, it makes us ask the question then after we read all of this. <clears throat> and the question I want to pose to you guys to ask yourselves today is, do we trust God sufficiently to see any good in adversity? If you're a note taker, you can write that down. I'm all over that. But the question we all need to ask ourselves today, and it's in this text, I think it's offering this, do we trust God sufficiently to see any good in adversity. I'm going to share a personal story of trust <clears throat> and hope. But Kate and I, my wife and I, we entered into this past January in a dark place. The pandemic took the life of my very much loved grandma Bochi. Uncertainty still of <clears throat> excuse me, if and when life would ever return to normal. We were not really seeing any of our, well, we were seeing some friends, but it was very different, and it was few and far between. We felt very isolated. Whether we navigated the pandemic well is really besides the point. The point is, we were in a season of adversity. As many of you probably were right there alongside us. Caitlin reads, on January 2nd, 2021, so January of this year. So aside from our time from adversity, it's also dark in January in Ohio. It's raining at a comfortable 32.5 degrees, right? It doesn't snow. And she reads this per her Bible uh, plan, Matthew 4.16. It says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Excuse me. She writes down in her Bible, in the margins, this prayer, quote, It feels as though we have been dwelling in darkness. Help me to see your great light. Now almost six months later to the day, <clears throat> we're in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, for our daughter Delaney's dance competition. And we happened to get this cabin up in the mountains, just like just outside of the Smokies. And on July third, Kate takes her cup of coffee and her Bible to go read it. She goes outside. I'm going to show you the picture. She walks outside to this. She sits down. She opens it. She checks her reading plan. Guess where it takes her. Matthew 4, 16. She reads, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death. On them, a light has dawned. She journals, the fear and waiting have dwindled. Praise God. Now, this story can conjure up many emotions and thoughts within us, but I share it just to illustrate one thing, and that is, after a time, through all of your seasons of adversity... And prosperity but mainly through all of your seasons of adversity friends you will see a light as sons and daughters of god we do not have empty promises or weak salvation we have more hopeful promises and songs sung over us than we could ever imagine <clears throat> jesus did not shy away from his moment of adversity. And in doing so, he gives us meaning and hope to navigate ours. While we cannot control when another day of prosperity will stop and a day of adversity will begin, we are given the wisdom to navigate both days. And in that wisdom, we ask ourselves, do we trust God sufficiently to see any good in our adversity? To close, just two simple practical applications. Uh, Number one, you ready for this? Dwell in the scriptures. (laughs) Scour them. Be hungry to find God's promises that He speaks over you. Scour the scriptures, which will give you meaning as to why you're in your current season. It won't be found anywhere else. And two, just memorize what you've read. Memorize a word, memorize a sentence. Memorize a paragraph, but memorize what God says about you and your future. Turn up the volume, so to speak, on God's promises, thus turning down the volume on the harmful, vain, and empty promises of this world. So now we come to our time of communion, and we are powerfully reminded that because God was willing to joyfully go to the cross for us, and to drink the cup of wrath that was due for us because of our sin. There is now no darkness, no illness, no fear, no suffering that will ever prohibit us from all the wonderful promises and enjoying the wonderful promises that God speaks over us. Take time this morning when we do communion to sit with Jesus, pray, let him examine your heart, and let him bring healing to its brokenness. Be empowered by his body and blood this morning as he promises we will be. For my friends here this morning who have not yet decided to put their faith in Christ, instead of taking part in communion, I encourage you uh, to talk with myself after the service, talk to one of the other pastors, a community group leader, or a close friend. And in that conversation, Be kind and genuine to yourself and ask, is the preacher's wisdom in Ecclesiastes left by itself agreeable to you? That's it. Is the preacher's wisdom in Ecclesiastes left by itself agreeable to you? Or does it leave you open to asking more questions about life? Wherever anyone is today, it doesn't matter. Either way, I'm happy that you guys could share in discovering the word with me this morning. And this is a place that Christ has made possible for all of us to come and explore what it looks like to live a life with him. So in a moment, the band will come back up. If you're a Christian, you want to take communion, you can take uh, the top part of this off, peel it back, veal's a wafer. This is Jesus's body, broken for you. And then you'll peel back the second layer, which gets you to the juice. You can drink it. And this juice represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your words for us today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you press upon our hearts the wonderful meaning you give to our stories. Illuminate our eyes to the work you are doing in our lives whether we find ourselves in a moment of prosperity or in a moment of adversity. Give us the wisdom not to argue with God in our season, but to enjoy being with him. Help us to slow down to see you and be able to hear all the beautiful promises that you, Father, speak over us. Jesus, thank you for making all these beautiful promises come true in the world's worst test of adversity, you stayed true, thus bringing us not only eternal life, but meaning to every step we take on the way. It is in your name that we ask these things. Amen.